Welcome back to the Positivity Podcast with me, your host, Robert Coach Campbell. If this is your first time listening, then I hope you're ready to hear some amazing stories from my guests, people who come from various walks of life but share one key thing, their positivity. So, without further ado, let's get into episode four. My guest on this episode is probably best known for exposing Jimmy Savile as a paedophile. Something that I think sums up this man's character, passion and drive. To get the justice for all of Savile's victims when others fail to be as brave. The former police detective and now investigative journalist is a man driven by his passion for justice and helping people through his media presence. To get answers. And he describes this as his calling. He has investigated some of the biggest cases, descending into the darkest places of our world and seeing things some of us couldn't even imagine. And he does all this and remains positive and driven. Because he has a mindset, he has a goal to help those in need. He is the one and only Mark Williams Thomas. To start off with Mark, a bit about yourself, uh, who is Mark Williams Thomas? So I suppose people will know me from my work on television as the investigator, which is on the ITV and Netflix platform, but also as the person that exposed Jimmy Savile. I'm an investigative reporter, a criminologist, and I am passionate and driven about trying to use my experience as a former police detective to get answers for people who are still waiting for justice. What do you think driven you to do that? You know, did that start as a young man before you joined the police or was that something that developed through the experiences of being in the police force? I think it's an interesting one. I think as aged 18, 19, you probably don't really know what you want to do. I, I wanted to do something that was outside. I played rugby at a senior level. At one stage, I was looking to go to New Zealand and play rugby on an exchange. And then I got the opportunity to apply for the police service and I did. And they came back and said, you know, you've got to decide which one you want, Surrey or Sussex. And I decided, OK, I'll go for Surrey because it was my area I was living in. And I had to knock the rugby thing on the head. Uh, and, and actually, it's a lesson in life in the future because I, when I look back on that, I think it was a missed opportunity. Now, of course, I needed to work. I needed to start to earn some money. But I use that as something moving forward and, and always say to myself, will I regret not doing this? So when there's a, an issue comes up or an opportunity, I always ask myself, if I look back on this in years to come, will I regret not doing it? And I think that's a really important thing for people always to consider when you're being asked to do something. And, and I joined the police service, and I suppose as you join the police service, you start to realise what people's lives are about. You know, sadly, you see the worst part of people's lives. You see them when they're at the most traumatic stages and you see, obviously, some of the worst types of people. And it started to drive me to want to help those people who, for all intents and purposes, can't help themselves. Shine the light in the darkest of corners. Use my uh, powers, as it were, in the police service then. Uh, but obviously since then and joining the, you know, being a, a, an investigative reporter, using the power of the media to garnish and help get answers to people. And, and justice comes in many different forms. Justice yeah. isn't just simply about putting somebody in a court and getting a conviction. Justice wears many different hats. 
Definitely. Did you have a personal experience which kind of drove you? Because I know personally I got into life coaching and mental health therapy and things like that because I suffered from PTSD from my yeah. time in the military. Did you have a personal experience or was it just seeing that sort of expansive real life through the, the eyes of the police force? It's funny, isn't it? Because as, as you work through life, you meet people who tend to go into a, a, a job because of a personal experience yeah. it drives them down yeah. a certain route that wasn't the case for me you know i've worked obviously in child abuse murders uh, missing people none of that's applied to me you know i've never had any i've had didn't have anyone close to me murdered i didn't have anyone close to me who sexually abused you know i wasn't suffering myself but for some reason i just started to feel that i could help people uh, now i call it a, a calling you know I, I'm, I do believe that we are given opportunities in life and we either take them or we don't take them and i feel that i've taken that and my vocation in life is to help people and and that's what i try and do yeah it's got to be a tough one how do you prepare yourself mentally you know when you were in the police force to deal with you know probably the most horrific things that could happen to a human yeah. being or a family you know, it's it's. I've had a few people talk about you know mother and things. The the actual victim is the person who's who's left behind to suffer with it, and that's it's. It, you were a family liaison officer as well, weren't you? So you dealt yeah, with the family. Yeah, I think my time in the police, and obviously my time doing the work now. I meet people at the most critical time in their life, the, yeah. the the time when they are at their lowest, and obviously masses of things going on. They might just have had somebody murdered, their loved one, their daughter, their son murdered. Uh, they might have someone missing. They have the police there. They have the media there. And then I turn up, you know, wearing whatever hat that I'm wearing. Yeah. And it can impact on you. It does impact on you. You know, I care. I genuinely care about everybody I work for. And therefore, I mean, not everyone does. Not everybody in the line of work I do. I do. You know, some see it just as a job. But for me, it's much more than just a job. You know, you have to care about the people. And, and when you care about people, it impacts on you. But what you have to be able to do is have the separation, the detachment, the ability to say, you know, I, this is my work in this period of time. But I also have to be able to separate the issues that you're dealing, you are facing and obviously what I'm working for and my own life. So you can't take it back in. And, and I think for a very long time, I was very good at doing that. You know, I was able to have that separation. I, I played sport, played rugby. You know, it was a massive part of my life, and it still is. I, you know, I love gardening. I love DIY. You know, I'm constantly. You, you won't find me sat down. I don't yeah. sit down. Yeah. I rarely sit down uh, because I'm just constantly active, doing things. And so, I think that enables you to to switch off. But I think it catches up on you. You know, I've lived in a, I live in a dark world, a yeah, pretty dark yeah. world with the type of things that happen. And I think over the last probably two years, I've realised that those things do have an impact on you. You know, they do start to tell. And I think we as a as a human race, particularly men, are particularly bad at discussing yes. the impact that it has mental health on them. And and I think it's also very hard to to find the right people to talk to. Because by and large, you know, so many people are, are just caught up in their own world yeah. and their own life. It's really difficult to for them to provide that. And uh, so I think that's hard. You know, the, the campaigns that go around, and I'm all for these campaigns. I think they're brilliant, get people talking. But it's much more than that. It's like, well, yeah. who to and how? Um, and, you know, the, the, 
services aren't there you know you talk to most people unless they can provide unless they can finance going to a counselor they're on the list for for months sometimes years before they get to see somebody so i think they do impact on you and I, and I do live in a dark world and you know you yourself you know ex-services you know we've seen some pretty horrific stuff i always use the the phrase is that you know i believe the unbelievable i have seen stuff that you would never ever want to see uh, you know and, and that is that does impact on you yeah definitely agree with that i think that's why with my coaching what i do is i do 50 50 so i do 50 percent corporate which is motivational team building, looking after mental health, mental well-being within a corporate environment. And I, you know, I bill for that. And then I do 50%, which is charity based. And predominantly at the minute, because of my experience is veterans, so they can reach out. Because like you say, it's, it's not just talking, it's talking to the right person. And when I had, you know, my diagnosis with PTSD in the end, I think it was about the third therapist before I clicked and was able to have a productive session and, and get things up because the, the first couple of people just weren't my people and we just, you know, you just, you've got to be comfortable to open up. There has to be the environment to open up. And yeah, like yeah. I say, the great, you know, there's a lot of people out there trying to do the right thing, but I think there needs to be sort of an overseeing regulation that kind of pulls it all together and makes it more effective and, and people can get to the right people quicker. I think yeah, I think we need to provide support definitely for people yeah. quicker, and and I think we need to provide the right support for people. I think mental, I mean, mental health services is a, is a, a breaking point yeah. if you're able to even get to them, um, and it's good we're talking about it. It is good we're talking about it, but I think it's. I still don't think people perhaps understand it. You know, the ideas of having a panic attack, the ideas of having anxiety. You know, unless you've had it, you don't get it. You generally, I mean, yeah. you know, so I, I believe, I generally believed I was very sympathetic to people who had mental health illnesses, you know, during the whole of my police career and, and even in the last, you know, 10 years or so. But it's not until you actually have anxiety or a panic attack yourself that you actually can put that into some context and, and understand how deliber deliberating it is. It just completely destroys you and you just can't function. And I think it's... It's one thing knowing, it's another thing understanding. Yeah, I think you're 100% right there because on a personal note, that was that was how I was. It was it was kind of like, I thought I knew what PTSD was. I thought I knew what mental health was. And actually, when you've got it, you don't know you have it. You're, you're that deep into it. It's, 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 a, it's hard to explain. It's hard to put into words. But it's, it's like you say, once you've experienced it, that puts you in a great position to help others. And then I've, I've kind of gone on and done the, the sort of academic side, you know, I've done the courses, I've done the psychology, the, you know, the mental health awareness, mental health first aid to add to the personal experience so I can be as, as much of a help as I can. But it's like you it's say, a day it's, at a time, it's a day at a time. And I think, you know, people experience things in different ways. You know, what impacts on you yeah. may be completely different to what impacts on somebody else. And so when somebody is saying, I'm bothered by it, it's worrying me. Yeah. You know, we, what we mustn't do is is portray our personal view in terms yes. of how that might affect us because it might not be an issue for you, but it's a big issue for them. Um, and I think, you know, the line of work I work in, you know, Jimmy Savile, for example, you know, these these take a lot out of you. They take a lot out of you because you start, on a, and I wouldn't say a mission, I think that's too strong, but you start on a process of an investigation, which is to get to the truth. 
You know, what I try to do is to establish the truth and what actually happened, because sadly, so often people get caught up in in kind of like where you're going. They set out the very beginning of where they want to go. And of course, you then create the narrative of where you want to go rather than what actually happened. So when we started to look at Savile, it was very clear that there was allegations of abuse against him. What we needed to do was to show whether or not those allegations had some substance, could be supported, uh, and of course be very mindful that he wasn't here to defend himself. Yes. So whatever we were doing, we had to be very clear that the evidence was compelling and overwhelming against him. Uh, and when we started off down the path to start to investigate him, I remember right at the very beginning saying to my producer, you know, because it was quite an interesting one. When we first started, you know, I didn't get paid to, there's an, a year's worth of work, and I didn't get paid till after the programme went out. Yeah. That was how nervous the channel were. Yeah. Uh, and so so it was a commitment. You know, fortunately, I was I had other work that was managing to, to fund that, and I knew that it was such a massive story and a massive thing that we were taking on. And it... Uh, but it was I ran it like a police investigation and then actually you very quickly know whether you've got something yes. within a matter of a week two weeks I knew there was people coming forward telling us stuff you speak to them they tell you to speak to somebody else and before you know it you, you've got you know, 10 15 people who tell you that uh, offenses that have happened to them or that they know about and then the pressures to get the program out I mean I don't think anybody could unless they've been in the situation and, and I think there aren't many scenarios that could replicate the Savile scenario. Uh, Unless you've been in that, it's very difficult to comprehend just how many forces there are upon you to not, not to not make a program, but to be in a position where you are perhaps not aided to make a program there's a reluctance yeah. as I say I wouldn't say that they were didn't want to make a program but there was a reluctance and a, and a cautiousness and what you have to do is get over that cautiousness and, and do things to be able to to put it out there and the pressure was immense I remember saying at one stage in the in the underground I was saying to Leslie my producer and I said, do you think we'll ever get this on telly? And she said, well, we've got to. And I said, we have got to. I said, do you know what? If they, if it isn't on telly, then we're going to have to just find someone who's got the finances that we can do this and we can put it out there. Yeah. You know, fortunately, ITV stayed with it. And, and we, we did something that was quite incredible. Um, and, you know, sat on the front pages for 41 consecutive days, yeah. which is phenomenal. Changed the lives of thousands of people around the country you know and probably around the world millions of people because it gave a voice to those people who had never been listened to and also gave a voice to those people who just didn't think they had a voice and no one would listen to them so it's changed policy it's changed procedures and you know and i've talked a lot about it over the years and, and i just simply did my job simply nothing more than that uh, and of course I was you know uh, and I think I do the job well which is in essence how it came out but I owe it all down to the victims you know if the victims yeah. hadn't put their confidence in me those five women that were on the program if they hadn't put their confidence in me then we would never have made a program and, and yes of course that says something about them trusting me and believing me and but it was down to them and it is about trust you know, I'm sure you've yeah. seen it in your line of work. You know, there's a couple of key things that one has to have. That's trust, honesty, 
uh, and openness. Yeah. And, you know, I'm incredibly transparent about things. That's why I get so annoyed when people play silly games. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's not for me. Just be straight with me. I'll be straight with you and you be straight with me. Yeah. Why do you think it took you to expose it? You know, why do you think nobody stepped up before? Because, you know, looking at the, the history of it and investigating it, it was so obvious. It was. It was there. You know. It's kind of like after the event. It's. It's like having the winning lottery numbers. It's easy to do after the lottery's been drawn to go. Yeah, that's the numbers. But yeah. it was. It was there, and it was kind of. You know, even the people you interviewed, there was a level where I kind of felt it was like even after you'd exposed it in the follow-up and you'd interviewed them again, they were kind of. They were still sticking to that narrative of well, I didn't see anything, and yeah. it's not. It, you know, it's somebody else's fault. I think it's really fault. hard to know why I was able to do it you know I'm uh, I don't think I did anything particularly special I just did what I do yeah. and um and maybe nobody had done that maybe there wasn't anybody else I mean there's other people like me um maybe nobody had just taken it on I mean I, I do have quite a unique job in in life and actually within the UK former detective turned investigative reporter and there isn't anybody else that does that who's a yeah. former detective and now an investigative reporter in, in, um, and they've got, got the platform that I've got. You know, I've got a primetime TV show. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, this morning I, I do their real crime on this morning. So I, I've got those platforms and newspapers. So perhaps it's that. Perhaps it's the credibility. I don't know. But, but whatever it was, worked. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much. I mean, it's, it's all comes together in a one-hour program. Yeah. But I can tell you the amount of hard work that went into that, sleepless nights, you know, working all kinds of hours, and also having to play, having to, to, to kind of second-guess what other people will be thinking in order to, to get it on air. Yeah. It's, it's strange to, to sort of speak to you where you're using the platform for, for such good, you know, looking after the families and the victims and giving them answers and exposing people who need to be exposed. And then you look at the other side of the media today where it's being used for such a negative, you know, the likes of Caroline Flack and, and people like that, you know, who sadly end up taking their life because the media platform is used yeah. in such a horrific The media is very good at knocking people. You yeah. know, I've been through it. You know, Mail on Sunday had a go at me. Yes. You know, sent a spread and, and decided to attack me for the work that I did over Savon and Utree because there's one journalist there who just dislikes me immensely and always has done and eventually got his, his, his pop. But look at Anton Deck, look at uh, Philip Schofield, yeah. you know, just to name but a few. They've they've all come under the wrath of the, the, the media. I don't think you you'll find any doesn't get at some stage the media to turn on them. And it's very sad because you know, the media, whereas on television, you know, we have to be incredibly accurate about what we put on television. We yeah. have to be balanced. We have to be fair. Newspapers don't need to do that. So there's no fairness in the newspaper's coverage. So if you as a, if you as a editor of a newspaper, a reporter, want to write something which is completely one-sided, unbalanced, unfair, you can do it because newspapers are allowed to do that. Now, that for me is, is disgraceful, absolutely shocking. Yeah. But it happens. It happens every day, and the news, the, the media, the media is very powerful. It has a great, yeah. um, it can do great good, really can, but it can also do great bad. 
Yeah, it's it's definitely something I see. And like my last guest was Miss Scotland, so we were talking about you know we're both from Scotland, so I look at you know Scottish media especially a very one-sided and very biased. And they like you say they use their power for divisive, you know, to separate a country when yeah. someone like yourself uses that platform for you know such amazing good. I, it, it beyond me. It's maybe my psychology that's different. That I don't understand why there's not more people like yourself, you know, using that platform for you know a really positive force. You know, it can. It can be, uh, and there, there are really people out there, obviously, that they do do some really good stuff in yeah. the media, some really positive stuff. I think that the you know bad people in the media are small, but it's always the small people that have the largest voices, sadly. Yes. And you know, some of these newspapers, I think, are just appalling how they've treated some people. You know, their behavior is just shocking. Uh, and I think you know, there's one thing disliking somebody, and that's fine. You know, we all have a different opinion, yeah. often, of people. But let's just be respectful for them and treat them in a manner to which we would want to be treated. And I think it's, you know, you see some of the campaigns the newspapers have run against people. Yeah. And you just think, is that fair? You know, we're in a world of mental health, we talk about all of that, and then you get the behaviour of the newspapers, right or wrong. You know, if somebody's done something wrong, fine, you know, bring, hold them to account. But if it's a personal opinion of a newspaper yeah. or the newspaper's journalists, I don't care. You know, that's your personal opinion. Let's be professional about this. But, uh, and sadly, it's not always there. Yeah, it's like to say, it's that sort of lack of the professionalism that kind of causes it. You see them they'll do a campaign one week about mental health and, you know, being kind and then in the next week they're absolutely dragging somebody through the gutter oh, on a personal um, it, Talk about uh, duplicity, you yeah. know, that, that fairness that sits across, nah, no. But yeah, they do do some really good stuff and the, and the media have been incredibly powerful in holding people to account over the years. They've done yes. some, some brilliant yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, when you, when you can, well, if you compare our media to other countries' media, yes. You know, the one thing that we do have is independence. Yeah. Absolutely doubt about that. You go to some of these other countries, there's absolutely no independence. It's just a shame that that independence becomes a, uh, allows people to have campaigns or, or personally motivated dislikes. But hey-ho, I think we, uh, you know, the world is, is full of complicated things, isn't it? That's it. It is very much so. It is. Uh, so the Savile case is probably the, the, the biggest one that, that I know you for, um, yeah. but you you were bringing down celebrities before you left the police force, weren't you? Yeah, probably not so much celebrities whilst I was in there, but I don't think, I don't, can't remember, uh, well, there's a couple of people that we did. I mean, I think the majority of the people in the police service you deal with uh, were people who just committed horrific lots of offences. Yeah. You know, I used to love going and, and just being able to turn someone's life around you know when you when someone comes to you and they make an allegation and you then start to dig into that person because whatever you start with if you're a good investigator will be never be what you end up with particularly with child sexual abuse yeah you know, at times people have come to me and you know i've got one allegation and i've just thought you know what dig 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 and before i know it i've got you know 10 15 victims uh, so that's what I was always do. You know, I always see that first part of the investigation allowing you to take the next step. And this is why, you know, when you go to investigate offenders who've got online child abuse images, you know, that's literally your foot in the door. Then you start investigating. But sadly, so often they just deal with that as an issue and don't look any further. 
And I think it's the same for everything. You know, I dig, dig and deep. There isn't a single job that I've ever dealt with where I haven't found out more information. Yeah. To find out more, you know, individuals' life apart, whether that be finding more information about the crime, who they know, what's going on. You know, I, I, I ask questions constantly. I mean, it's funny, if I go anywhere and um, you start, you meet someone for the first time, that sounds like a very strange thing to say because you know we've been in lockdown for so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when world does resume, and uh, and obviously looking back previously, I'm the most inquisitive person there is. You know, if I if you invite me to your house for a um, uh, a dinner party, if I went to the toilet, I'd be through your cupboards. <laughs> you wouldn't find anything exciting in my cupboard. No. Well, no, but give me a state. Tell me what you're about. Yes, yeah. Me, I, you know, constantly, I observe everything the whole time. You know, yeah. I'd clock everything in that room. It's something I, I used to do. Um, and it was it was one of the things I had to let go. It was it was that sort of military mentality. When you when you walk into a room, you're, you're assessing everything. And you do it subconsciously. You know, I've done courses at Hereford where they... They get you into that mindset, and then you just you, it stays with you. But actually, it's exhausting, and you don't realise it's it's so exhausting. It is exhausting, but it's it's kind of like it's your it becomes your DNA. Yes, yeah, it becomes very part much. of you. You know, I'm an incredibly I'm a timekeeper. You know, time is really important to me. Yeah. State of dress is really important to me. How you look is really important to me. Uh, accuracy is really important. You know, I, I people who come and work for me in terms of production teams, and uh, I tend to always have the same assistant producer. And she said many times to me, she said, "I've just told them that if they're going to tell you things, just be very clear and very straight." Mark doesn't really <laughs> like you know five pages when it can be done in in half. Yeah, definitely. That's it. It's, it's give me it, give me it in the briefest form. And, and I'm a details on. person as well. You know, I want detail, uh, and I think the public want detail. You know, I think when you look at my programs. It, detail is really important. I think yeah. we've gone from a stage of, of skirting around things to being really detailed. And I think particularly when you're dealing making crime programs, I think one of the things that is being called upon more and more is detail. Yeah, because I think a lot of crime programs that you see in the mainstream, they focus more on the drama and the, the sort yeah. of... And they forget yeah. the actual bit that people want to know. Why Why did he do that? You know, who was, who was there? You know, I watch your... Um, your Netflix series, and like you said before, you I can see where you dig and dig and dig, and then it branches off. You know, you start off looking for the, the young girl in the south of England, and then you end up in Scotland, and then you you know you're investigating the World's End murders, and you tie them into the three in yeah. Glasgow, and and I re, I remember that because you know that's that's my part of the world. I remember when Vicky Hamilton went missing. Right. You know, there was there was posters on every bus stop, every underpass. Yeah. You know, it was it was Huge everywhere. Story. You know, Vicky Hamilton's disappearance, and uh, and then um, you know the whole of the the world's end. You know, murders. Yeah. That was a massive thing. And Angus Sinclair. I mean, I have to say, out of all the serial killers I've looked at, Angus Sinclair is one of the biggest. Yeah. If not the biggest, you know, by far. And I rule out the likes of um, Shipman and things like that because that's a very different type of crime. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Sinclair was uh, undoubtedly responsible. I mean, in the end, I linked him to probably another 10 murders. Yeah. And he was so prolific over a very short period of time as well. Absolutely prolific. Uh, yeah, really, really nasty piece of work and, and undoubtedly responsible for all the other murders that, that we had. But... You know, sadly, just like Peter Lawrence, we'll never know. 
You know, he died, yeah. he took his secrets to him, and, you know, sadly, Peter Lawrence now has died, not knowing what happened to his daughter, Claudia. You know, 12 years, he's fought tirelessly for answers as to what happened to his daughter. And he now leaves this world not knowing. Yeah. Uh, and I just hope, in some way, as he passes on, he, he gets some kind of peace from it all. Yeah. Because... He never got any peace in the last 12 years. It was nothing but anguish every day for him. Yeah, because you said you became really close whilst... whilst I got to know him. I mean, if you, got to, you get to know these people. Yeah. So I've spent days with him. I've talked to him. We've chatted on the phone. You get to know these people and you get to be a small part of their life because you're trying to help them. And I think the one thing that stood out for me from people from, uh, of Peter was his not only his love for Claudia, I mean, that was just yeah. given. He was he was just so fond of her. But it was his, his dedication, his balance, his integrity, you know, and, and not everybody keeps that. It's really hard because, you know, particularly if the police have messed up and they've not yeah. done, you know, you, you start hating people, you start disliking them. But Peter never gave that. You know, he was always balanced in terms of how he spoke, very respectful, um, yeah, very sad, and I think it, it raises for me so many questions about all those other families that live not knowing. You know, the victims of Angus Sinclair. Yeah. You know, we don't know the victims of Peter Tobin. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm doing a case in Coventry with Nicola Payne. You know, and and her parents are elderly now. Her mum had a stroke not long ago, and. You know, it makes you think, you know, well, how much longer will they be there? I mean, I've got this, you would have seen in the uh, investigator series, the Jessie Earl case, the girl that was yeah. found at Beachy Head. Parents were in their 90s. And, you know, I've said to the parents right at the very beginning, with before we start making the programme, what are the two things you'd want? And he said, well, two things. One, obviously, we'd love to find out who killed Jesse, yeah. but secondly, we want the inquest overturned. You know, the inquest outcome was wrong. Yeah. So we made the programme quite clearly showed I think Tobin is responsible yeah. for that but then you get a position where I wanted to continue to give them their answers so I pulled together a legal team and for the last two years we've been fighting to get a document evidence together to apply to the Attorney General and we applied to the Attorney General and just before Christmas the Attorney General came back and said that they will quash the initial, or that they're referring it to the court, the yeah. High Court, to quash the initial inquest. That doesn't happen. You know, yeah. you're lucky if you get the Attorney yeah. General to quash an inquest once a year. So to get that, it's huge. And the family is just like, this is just incredible. They were told by the police, you couldn't do it. You, your inquest stands, you can't do anything. And I went to the family and said, no, 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 you can do it. It's hard, but you can do it. And we've now got evidence that we want to dig up, we want to exhume the body look for DNA to try and see if we can get DNA either off hers, because Jesse's DNA doesn't sit on the national database. Yeah. So our aim is to get Jesse's DNA, put it onto the national database, and then perhaps and then have that searched across crime scenes. Yes. So, for example, if we do know uh, Peter Tobin had loads of jewellery on him when he was arrested, and there's DNA, outstanding DNA marks from those jewellery, yeah. so if we can put Jesse's DNA on the national database, it may match up with jury from other offenders yeah. their DNA um, and also enables us that she's potentially I don't think it will happen in this case but you could potentially even find the offender's DNA on her body because DNA wasn't around then you see yeah, yeah. so 
So these are massive things, and, and I do this all behind the scenes. You know, we've been work, quietly working away. I, I got some amazing contacts in the legal profession. I've got a QC who's just brilliant, and he's come on board for free to do it. So, you know, I, whilst I have a big profile in the media, I do an awful lot behind the scenes as well to try and get answers and get solutions for people. Yeah, I think that comes across. You know, when you watch the Netflix investigations, especially the, the the ones I've seen most recently, you can see the amount of work that goes into it. It's, and I, I don't know if people maybe miss that and just see that as a TV show, but you can see yeah. the detail that's in there. And I noticed as well, there seems to be, I don't know if maybe you can clarify. Do you find the Crown Prosecution Service a frustration at times? Because I kind of felt that came across where you yeah, were going... Particularly in, particularly in Scotland. I mean, you have a pretty unique, um, without being rude to every Scottish person, a very archaic criminal justice system yeah. built around a criminal justice system that the UK or the England and Wales updated many, many years ago. Yours is still well and truly in the past. Uh, and, of course, your police service are the servants of the Crown. Yes. Boom. You know, they are servants of the Crown, whereas the police service here, they are individual you know, officers to make their own decisions. You know, the Crown Prosecution Service make decisions on charging and, and, are, and yeah. additional evidence that's perhaps required, but they're not servants. The police are not servants of, of the Crown Prosecution Service, where yours are, the yeah. Procureur Fiscal. So they're effectively doing what the Procureur Fiscal says. And you have a very strange process in, a, in Scotland, whereas until a case is... Uh, solved it remains live and active mm -hmm. even if you're not doing anything on it which is just bonkers so for those cases when we applied for information from the Scottish police they said well it's live and we're going well you're not doing anything on it no 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 we're not but it's still live and so like, well, this is just you can't get mad. anything if it's so they didn't give us anything yeah um, yeah I think the whole so the Crown Prosecution Service I think some make some terrible decisions, but yeah. so does so does the police. I think they're massively overworked. I think they sometimes obviously have the wrong skilled people in the job. Yeah. Uh, and it is about targets. Should never be. You yeah. know, policing, the criminal justice system shouldn't be about targets. It should be about right or wrong and the right evidence. But if you've got two cases and and uh, they were both clearly show the offenders responsible you know this grand prosecution service might decide well we've only we can only have three more prosecutions or one we can only have one more prosecution so one of those cases is we aren't yeah. going to prosecute with and yeah. you go that's not right that's not right but you know unfortunately money dictates yes life you know whether that be the criminal justice system whether that be what you want in life you know money 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 that's what makes the world go round and I suppose, like you say, what you do within your media platform gives the justice of a different type. You know, you, you are getting that justice, even I try. if it's been missed. I try, you know, and I try, yeah. and it's about giving people answers. You know, very often, it's about trying to give them the answers for questions that they, they just don't know what's happened. Uh, I can't arrest people anymore. I can't take people to court. Um, but what I can do is is try and give them answers or put it out there that causes the police to ask those. Yeah. You know, for the Crown Prosecution Service and the Procular Fiscal not to reopen the clear murders that we sh that we showed in that program that were responsible for that Sinclair was responsible for is unforgivable. It's just is when it becomes too difficult 
then they just don't deal with it. Yeah. You know, life is difficult and it presents some challenges and sometimes we have to go, okay, well, I'm not quite sure what, what that means, but let's go with it. Yeah. Um, and, I, so, and so often I find the Crown Prosecution Service, Procular Fiscal, are making the decision of what we would expect a jury to make. Let the court decide, not you. Let the court decide. Yes, yeah, take it to the court and let the... Let yeah, the absolutely, that's what they're there for. Yeah. So, sort of jumping back in with the Jimmy Savile case, why do you think that, because I believe he was investigated and he was interviewed prior to his death, was yeah. that the Crown Prosecution Service maybe making a bad decision or do you think there was something more sinister because he had links to top areas? No, I think the police the police did a really poor investigation. Yeah. So Surrey Police did a really poor investigation. They didn't follow up any of so he so they asked him questions. He gave them answers, but they didn't validate any of those answers because had they validated any of those answers, they'd have clearly shown that he was lying. Yeah. So they did a really bad investigation, and sadly that often happens. I think they were they were blinded by his status. Yeah. Uh, which gave him the opportunity to to say what he wants and they didn't follow up and I think he also got them to believe that he was a man of who was always going to be um, have false allegations against him yeah. so, that, so in simple terms the police did a really bad investigation then and then the Crown Prosecution Service uh, made a terrible decision you know a terrible decision not to happen is you had Surrey Police investigating you had Sussex Police investigating now the Crown Prosecution Service knew both of these uh, and specifically said, you know, you can't tell each of it, you can't tell the other party that there's another person coming forward. Because had that other person known there was somebody else, they say very clearly, and I think that would have been the case, is they would have continued with the prosecution. Yeah. You know, if you don't know anybody else is, is supporting, you don't tell them who, but you say, well, there is another victim to come forward. Yeah. That gives you the strength to talk. So the Crown Prosecution has made a fatal decision there. Uh, and ultimately allowed him to get away with it. But it goes back further than that, of course. You know, that was that was just prior to his death. Yeah. But you look at the years previous to that, and did the police have opportunity to do things previously against him? Absolutely. You know, they'd got an anonymous letter written to them, which said that it was Jimmy Savile and gave evidence that they could have made some inquiries on. Uh, they had a person going to the police station to report him for uh, rape. They did nothing. So there was a lot of information that over the years that was feeding through to the authorities who did nothing. And then, of course, the newspapers, you know, the media's ha media had loads of stories, yeah. probably more than more than the police did. But it always got buried. Um, why did it get buried? Well, some of it was quite simply because of his status. Yeah. He was so powerful and it would have been an incredibly difficult thing for a newspaper to do. I say difficult, it would have been difficult. It was difficult for us to do our programme. Not insurmountable, but they didn't want to take it on. They didn't want to do it. Yeah. And so the newspapers simply let it die. They closed it and, and weren't interested. But you, you take that on to other people. You know, Max Clifford, who yeah. I exposed. Yeah, Max Clifford was, was had newspaper editors in his pocket. He yeah. was doing a deal, one story to that. Uh, and maybe there was a little bit of that going on with with Savile, maybe Savile was saying, well, you don't do that, and, and I'll, you know, I'll do you a bit of press here, and I'll do this. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Are there darker powers than that? No. No, I mean, I, you know, people said to me after Savile, you know, you, you should look out, look out for yourself. You, you should be worried people might come and take you out. It's like, no one's going to try and kill me, and if they do, I won't know about them. 
Um, you know, it just happened. The ones, that, the, the most dangerous ones, the ones you don't know about. Yeah, I mean, I got sent. A, I got sent an incendiary device after Savile. Yeah. I got sent child abuse material after Savile. Um, and those individuals, yeah, the incendiary device could have blown your hand off. You know, yeah. uh, if it had gone off. So there are there are some real nutters and some mad people out there. But I think you know. <sighs> Anybody in power, if they ever wanted to silence me, know that there's no point because I'll never be bought off. You know, no one's going to come and silence yeah. me. If I feel that there's an issue that needs to be raised, I raise it. And I think people now in, you know, in those influential places know about me and know, do you know what? Mark can't be bought off. Yeah, just leave him alone. It's easy. It's better if you just leave <laughs> well, him alone. Or you can still. I mean, they still annoy me, but uh, they'll still have a go. But uh, it's like, yeah, do you know what? I mean, I think you have to. You have to go. You don't grow rhinoceros skin. Absolutely not, because things still upset you. And I get upset. You know, people say some horrible stuff. You yeah. know, when I was in my early days of, of kind of like starting in TV, I remember my daughter came home one day and she'd been googling a name on the internet, and it came up with a noose round my neck and some really horrible stuff and she was really upset about it and yeah. we talked about it you know and i said to all my kids you know just don't search my name on the internet um because there are some horrible people you know social media some of the stuff I and mean, there's some really vile stuff about me on the internet you know a long time ago i realized that actually don't search your name yeah yeah i suppose that's the the thing when you when you put your head above the parapet to to do what's right and get what's right you're gonna you're gonna encounter these people and that's the, you can the never please everybody yeah you know even if even if something is so clear in my view and in the majority of the public's view you'll always have the minority come forward and say no and sadly the minority often have the largest voice yeah than the majority because yeah. the majority just remains silent you know, there are people in life, and I'm sure you've met them, who, if I said that that wall behind you was cream, they'd go, no, it's blue. Mm. You know, go, no, no, it's clearly cream. And it says cream on the, the paint here. Yeah. And they go, no, it's blue. Yeah. Uh, you can't convince those people. Those people are unconvincible. You can't take them along you uh, along on a journey with you. And that's what I try to do for so many people is, you know, come on the journey with me. Let me take you with you. And with most of my programs, it's not about me saying to you, this is what happened. It's about saying, I'll give you all the evidence. I'll set it all out. Yeah. I'll give you my you know, views and things. And you make up your own mind. You know, when I did Savile, you know, the day before Savile broadcast, there was a lot of criticism coming from certain quarters who saying, you know, how dare, particularly BBC Leeds, uh, how dare you talk mm. about him, he's dead, he can't defend himself. And, and I, you know, you're judge and jury. And I remember I wrote this article and I said, you know, I'm not judge and jury. Absolutely not. That's what the public is. That's yeah. what the viewer is. You know, I'm just giving you the evidence and you can believe it or not. It's entirely a matter for you. You know, that doesn't make me judge and jury. You make up your own mind. And, and that's what I merely set to do. That was the, the one thing that did come across when I watched the, the documentary you'd done on Savile was, you know, you still referred to him as Sir Jimmy Savile. You used the words allegation. You know, you, you didn't draw your conclusions into it and overlay no. it. Was very... I think it's really important. You know, it's about, I think when we're in the media, we have a right, we have to be balanced. And sadly, a lot of media aren't balanced, but we do need to be balanced. We need to be fair. We need to be balanced. And um, yeah, where it's right, be judgmental. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. You know, if someone's got convicted of an offence and, and it's a horrific offence, then there's no problem to call them a beast. You know, violent yeah. thing. But yeah. you know, until 
there's some clear determination, then we should be referring to them as allegations. We should be allowing people to have the benefit of the doubt. You know, I think we, we do have the best criminal justice system in the world. It still make, gets things wrong. It makes massive mistakes uh, at times. But overwhelmingly, it's right. And, you know, we have to let that justice take its, take its course. Yeah, definitely. That definitely comes across in your work the way, you know, I'm, I'm big on neurolinguistics. Um, so it's, it's the language you use is perfect. You know, it's not judgmental. It's, you know, it's, it's not paedophile Jimmy Savile would yeah. set that prerequisite. But that's, this is who he is. This is, you know, it plants the seed. If you didn't do that, you know, it was Sir Jimmy Savile when these are the victim stories and it's, it's make your own mind up. And yeah, it's, it's great journalism. It's, it's the way I see it is how journalism should kind of be. Because there was a lot about um, one of the other cases I know you've done a lot of work on was the the Madeleine McCann case. Mm-hmm. What is your feeling on that? Where do you you know do you ever see her being found? Do you ever see anybody being held to account for what happened to her? Yeah, I mean I think it's very sad. I wrote in my book Hunting Killers in terms of yeah. what I thought the outcome would be, and, and I don't think we'll ever see an outcome. Yeah. I, I think it it is solvable. It's absolutely solvable. The problem is I think too much time has now passed and too many mistakes have been made by the authorities, particularly the Portuguese authorities, but I don't think it's solvable. Um, And, you know, do I think she's dead? Yes, absolutely. I think she was killed probably pretty quickly within the first 24 hours of her abduction. I think she was abducted by a stranger, you know, and I've, I've given a talk about this. I used to go and do talks over in the US and there's a massive conference in Texas every year, which is predominantly FBI, but also the other uh, policing services. And, and I gave a talk about Madeline and child abductions in the UK. And I think, you know, when I, and I wrote a paper on it, but if you make a comparison, so people will say, yeah, but what's the chances of a predatory paedophile being in the area at the same time Madeline is there? What we do know is on the morning of Madeline's disappearance, she woke up and said to Kate and Jerry, where were you last night? Because Sean and Amelie, the twins, woke up. And they said, well, we're only in a tapas bar just over the back. Obviously, age-appropriate language that were, they were talking to her. Yeah. So Madeline knew that that night, if they were to wake up, uh, Jerry and Kate, if they weren't, mum and dad, if they weren't in the apartment, they were going to be in a tapas bar, which is just over the back. And the only way she could get to that was to walk out of the apartment, down the steps, onto the main road, walk 50 or so yards down the main road, and then back in. So you're out into the public. So we've got a young girl walking down there, and I believe that's the opportunistic element where an offender come and took her. Yeah. And you say, well, hang on a minute, what's the chances? And, and if you look at past cases, so Jeanette Tate, 1978, she was cycling with her friends uh, in uh, Devon and she was cycling over the top of a hill. This came over the top and, and literally 20 seconds behind and her bike was on the floor and she'd vanished. She's yeah, never been on. seen again since. So the parents, friends were very close, totally opportunistic. And then you look at uh, Sarah Payne. So Sarah Payne was out walking with her parents and brother and she walked through a hole in a fence in a field she walked through parents and brother come through follow and uh, she's vanished sarah's disappeared brother sees the back of a white van disappear and it just so happens that it's roy whiting who's abducted her and taken her and takes her off to murder her but roy whiting hadn't been watching her he hadn't targeted her. Yeah. He just happened to be there, and he was out looking for an abduction that day. So you've got two cases of child abductions, and child abductions by strangers are yes. very rare, which show you that actually predatory paedophiles opportunistically look for their victims, yeah. and that's exactly what happened, I believe, with Madeleine McCann. Um, 
and you know Jeanette Tate's body has never been found. Uh, so you know you've got you've got the whole scenario. You know what has happened to these people, where they've gone. I believe that it was an opportunistic offender. Do I believe that um, the the guy they've got in the frame now is responsible? No, no. I think he's he's a predator, he's a paedophile. No doubt about that. But his targeting offending is is a different age bracket. It's older. Yeah. You know his is offending now he, yes he was into child abuse and I think he is definitely into child abuse but his offending has changed in terms of his pattern of offending uh, and the evidence they have on him sadly doesn't meet the criteria at all uh, the police don't believe that it's a murder still they're treating it as a missing persons in the UK that is uh, the Portuguese uh, are very doubtful as well and it's only the Germans that have come out and categorically said that he's responsible yeah. for murder uh, obviously, there's no body. They've not found Madeline anyway at all, and there's no compelling evidence from their point of view that they've got that they can bring this guy to court. So very sad, really. I mean, it was a massive announcement, obviously, last year when they said that, yeah, this, you know, yeah. uh, announcing that there was a murder. But it, it is. I think it's pretty much now. We'll probably never know unless someone comes and coughs it or parts of Madeline's body are found but I think that's highly unlikely now yeah yeah I've noticed that in, in quite a lot of these cases where they they don't admit to everything uh, do you think that's a power thing is that you know part of this yeah so, the what, so what offenders will do you know I'm doing a, a, a program at the moment uh, where the offenders admitted to a lot of crimes but not all of them um, and by and large they'll admit to what they know you've got yeah. So from a policing point of view, if you show your hand as to what you have got, then they'll prosecute you for that. Uh, but they won't tell you everything they've done. There's very few offenders that will ever come into an interview and cough it all. I remember once I interviewed a, a sex offender, air traffic controller, Anthony Bridger, uh, from Gatwick Airport. And we got him for a number of offences. I think we got him for three or four offences. And during the course of the interview, I kind of played a bit of an interesting game because I had his diary, I had his diary with loads of boys' names in them. Uh, and I said to him, you know, I've got this lad, you know, tell me about your offences against him. I had no idea he was a victim, no idea. And he coughed it. And so I said to, said to him, I said, look, there's a lot of other young lads in here, yeah. obviously, that I want to talk to you about and the allegations against them. Uh, anyway, we spoke to his solicitor afterwards because the, the interview uh, was finished for that day. We interviewed him loads. And the solicitor said to me, what he said is if you put the names to him and, and he'll tell you what he's done. So we had to be very very clever, really, because for, the, for most of those young lads in the book, we just didn't have time to get any allegations from them. We yeah. didn't know anything. So we had to play a game. And unfortunately, it worked. But of course, what it does tell you is, well, what if there were victims that weren't in that book? Yeah. You know, yeah. He, didn't, he didn't offer them. He only offered to clear up the names of the people that we had. And undoubtedly, there were many, many more victims because we continued to do some more work on him whilst he was in custody. And we found more victims. Um, but yeah, I, I think by and large, offenders will admit what they know you've got on them. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. I, that, you know, obviously putting yourself into that psychology of, of an offender like that, it's, it's a foreign world. And when I watch your work or, you know, other documentaries, you, you, you do kind of get left feeling, why why don't they just admit to it and give the families that, that bit of... They don't care. They don't care. Yeah, yeah, Peter Tobin, Tobin did not care at all. He's a vile, horrible man. Yeah. yeah there's an interview of Peter Tobin. 
where he talks about not giving a damn about the victims of yeah. anything. They don't. Uh, but I think, you know, the brutality of the crimes that they commit sets them out. And most killers who are serial killers will have more victims. What do you think it is within them that makes them that way? Because that's, it's something that's always interested me because there's so many conflicted opinions on what creates that, that mindset, that well, negative... It's a massive question, is it nature or nurture? Yeah. Uh, I think... You know, children are a blank canvas. So when we grow up, we are influenced by the outs about by what occurs around us. So if you're brought up in a violent relation, a violent house, that will impact on your future behaviour. If you're be brought up in a house which is very sexualised, that will impact on your behaviour, whether that be committing offences or whether that be your own understanding of morality around sexuality. Yeah. So. We do that, and sometimes that's very subconscious. It's not even a conscious thing that we, we have. It's subconsciously because it surrounds us every day. Yeah. And I think those things take their into themselves into adult life. And then, of course, we, we're, we continue as we grow up to, to make decisions and decide what we like and what we want to do and what excites us and what doesn't excite us and, and where those, uh, those adrenaline kicks come from. You know, and, and if you look in terms of an offender, and it's the same for everything, it's access, opportunity and motivation. You know, you have to have access and opportunity to offend, but what motivates people differs. But by and large, offenders go through a cycle of offending behaviour. So they consider the offence that they're going to commit. They then commit the offence and, and whatever drives them to commit the offence in the first place. But then they go through a thoughtful process once they've done that, reflecting on whether or not they're going to commit another one. And sometimes outside influences prevent them from doing that. Yeah. You know, if I get caught, I'm going to jail. I'll lose my family. I'll have no contact. And that's enough sometimes to stop people from committing a further offence. Yeah. But then also there's the um, cognitive distortion that occurs within people's mindset, yeah. which means that they can justify it to themselves. So, for example, they, the cognitive distortion might be, yeah, if I arrested... I'm unlikely to go to jail. They don't give jail now to anybody. They get, you get community service. You know, everyone does cognitive distortion to a to a yes. to a degree yeah. most of the time. You know, if you're a smoker, you will probably at some stage have used cognitive distortion in your way of of thinking about reducing the impact of of you putting smoke into your body. You know, I only smoke ten. I don't smoke twenty a day. Imagine if I smoke twenty a day. Yeah. You know, I only drive 35 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour speed limit. Okay. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not as I'm going 50, is it? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big thing I do with the coaching. It's that breaking the narrative you give to yourself and going, you're holding yourself back. You know, on the sort of high achievement coaching that I do, it's, it's setting that new distortion to a positive of, I can do this, I can achieve this, this is possible. But yeah, it's like you say, it can be used the opposite way because it's, it's very much the case in, in most people that they, they do hold themselves back. And, and it's it's how I always finish. It's a quote or a piece of music that you go to for a positive in life. Yeah. Uh, what do I... Oh, that's a really interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I think it's... Um, I think one of the things I often use, and I use it in a positive way, right, which is Radix Malorum Escupiditas, which is the love of money is the root of all evil. And I do believe that. And I think it's really important to remember that because it's what drives us. You know, what drives us shouldn't be money, but yeah. because we want to do it. It should be passionate about what we do. And I think if you do that, you'll get much more satisfaction out of life. 
you know, when you're in a position and someone says to you, no, I'm doing this job just for money, life is short. Yeah. Go and do something else that you love doing. Of course you need to earn some money to survive, and sadly that's the reality. But don't do it for money. Do it because you love it. Yeah, definitely one of mine. Go with the passion and the money will fall. Last one is a practice. Is there anything that you practice, be it a meditation or a breath work or anything like that? You know, when, you, when you're having a really bad time, just to clear the head and, and bring your positivity levels back up. So I think a couple of things I do. So I stretch. I yep. think stretching is good because it takes your your mind off what you're doing to yep. do to do that. Um, and I go outside, and, and that would be either you know go for go for a bike ride, uh, go and play tennis, go and do something sport. So I think sport is really important yep. for me to do that. Uh, sport on telly, something like that. It's about it's about distracting the mind, you know. And I think if you talk to anybody who's had anxiety, panic attacks. Take that, take that mindset into something else. Do something else. Yeah. Distract yourself. Go and do something else, and I think that really does help. Ah, oh, definitely. That's that's great. I I really appreciate you taking the time because I know we've squeezed it in in between filming, so I'm much appreciated. No problems, Robert. Look after yourself and take care. I will do. You too, Mark. Thanks very much. Well, there you go. That was the amazing Mark Williams Thomas and episode four of the Positivity Podcast. I think the main positive I have taken from the podcast is that people like Mark exist in our society. He really does go out on a daily basis and help people. And also, as we see in the Savile case, he shines light into the darkest areas when others shied away from doing so. His work has undoubtedly changed the lives of thousands of victims and families and he shows no signs of stopping or slowing down. If you haven't already, please go and check out his work on ITV and Netflix, and you'll see the tireless efforts he is making to bring in justice in whatever way he can. And remember, if you invite him for dinner, make sure you've got nothing to hide in your cupboards. I've been your host, Robert Coach Campbell. If you wanna know more about me or my work, Search Robert Coach Campbell on all major platforms. So until the next time, choose positivity.